Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. We chat with the OHL's first female referee. The Hamilton Bulldogs are about to start their season. How can we reduce our food waste? The Prime Minister's private apology to a BC First Nation is being called hollow. Local Tory MPP Donna Skelly responds to Hamilton's red-hot urban sprawl debate. And McMaster apologizes after a fake homecoming party. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A woman from Blackstock, Ontario has broken a glass ceiling in the hockey world. Last Thursday night, Kirsten Welsh became the first woman to officiate an Ontario Hockey League game. Kristen, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You suited up as a lines person in a preseason game between Mississauga and Guelph. How did it go? Um, honestly, it was as good as I as I could have expected it to go. Um, I had like the support from the players and the crowd and the people at the rink. I mean, it was it was incredible. Like I had at least five or six guys come up to me on the ice, you know, in warm ups being like, Congratulations, like so happy you're here. Like it's the support I've received I've been receiving from like the league personnel is actually incredible. So it's it was it was really great. That's pretty cool. <laughs> what was the biggest challenge in the transition from Kirsten the player to Kirsten the referee? <laughs> uh yeah, so it's definitely you just have to be aware of what uh, more going on on the ice instead of just like getting the puck and being in position. I mean, obviously you still have to be in position, but it's just, you're watching for a lot of like technical things. So, I mean, you know, hand passes, high sticks as a linesman, I mean, face offs, right. Um, icing, soft sides. It's, it's just a different perspective um, as a whole, but it's a perspective that I never really thought about, you know, as a player. So it really opened up my mind to what referees actually go through every day. And it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it is not easy being official because you get you get it from fans and players and coaches as well. For sure. And I think that's like why this role is so intimidating to um, just anyone, you know, to get to join. Like there is, uh, it's just when you think, when you're a player, I never, I never dreamed of being a referee. Like I never... If you asked me as a as a player, you know, in my playing days, if I'd ever switched over, I would have laughed. I would have been like, no way. Like, there's no way I'm, I'm ever doing that. Just because of, like, how brutal I was to referees. Like, I was, the, I was a culprit myself. So, it's just, like, a different respect game, though. Like, I mean, um, obviously, you're going to have hardships, but it's, it's the intensity of the game, and it's the passion of the players. And being a player, I can realize that. It's not personal. So, it's easy for me to kind of distinct the two. So have have you gotten the urge to call former officials and apologize? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, not really. It's because, like, I still, like, I mean, it's just being a bigger player. I, I had a lot of, like, penalties just be- because I was a large player in the female <laughs> league without hitting. Yeah. So, I mean, I still stand by that. Like, I still kind of, like, give the bigger kids, like, the benefit of the doubt and try and, like, I just was like, I don't know, all the refs I've ever played with gave the smaller players a benefit of the doubt. So now I kind of have that perspective of being like, I know what you're doing. Like, <laughs> it's not going to fly with me. <laughs> Our guest on uh, Good Morning Hamilton is Kirsten Welsh. She is uh, the OHL's first female referee. Why did you make the jump to officiating? What is what is the allure? Sure, yeah, I can explain. So uh, I went to school uh, down in Pittsburgh, played Robert Morris D1 hockey for four years. Uh, my graduating year, so I was captain my senior year, 
graduated and I didn't really have a plan to play after after school. I mean, there was options, but I just not, nothing really made sense to me. So I was approached by um, one. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Stephen Wacom. Yes. He is the vice president of uh, all official development for the NHL. Um, he actually approached my assistant coach asking if there's anyone from my graduating class who's interested in doing refing to go to this combine. So I was like, you know, I don't really have anything else. I'd love to stay in the game. I'll give it a shot, see where it takes me, you know. And uh, since that first combine I went to, I mean, the, just, the doors have just been opening ever since. And that's, that's the main thing here. It's like it's, it's happening top down. Like that's where the support is coming from is like literally from like the NHL down. So the fact that these uh, like small hockey you know, leagues are, are, are having this come to their, you know, just nor- like having this as a norm. It's incredible. It's incredible to see that I, like, I mean, if I didn't have the support that I had, then this would not have been a reality. But the fact that they're like spearheading the change is truly, truly incredible. It's just crazy to be a part of. That, that's pretty huge. You've had a number of other firsts, including officiating in the NCAA at the Buffalo Sabres Top Prospects Tournament back in 2019. You were also at the 2020 NHL All-Star Game in St. Louis for a three-on-three women's game. You're you're a yeah. fantastic role model for young girls now. What do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just trying to, like, do my best. And, like, honestly, the biggest thing that I could ever dream of is just creating an avenue for them to see that this is a possibility. You know, like, women belong in hockey, and especially, like, as an official, like, there should be no gender difference on when you're officiating a game. So um, just to have that, I mean, there's always, there, I think personally there's a lot better mentors than me who have been in, in the game longer and who kind of are more just established and, people who I mentor, you know, who've been in the game for 10, 15 years, who actually refed me in college. I have the, I refed with her at the All-Star game. So it's cool how it kind of, like a full loop, but I still have a long way to go, no doubt. So um, we'll we'll see where the future takes me, but just to have, just to have this avenue open is more than I could ever dream of. Uh, We only have uh, about 30 seconds here. We, We now see women officiating in the NFL and the NBA. Is your goal to one day do so in the NHL? No, I'd like to, I'm just going to, I'm just taking it day by day. I have no expectations. I mean, it would be awesome, incredible to see, you know, a, a woman, not necessarily myself, but um, I just hope to be be here one day when that happens, for sure. Well, looking forward to that. Kirsten, thank you very much for the time. Congratulations, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Have a good day. <laughs> You too, Kirsten Welsh, uh, trailblazing on the ice. And what a great story from playing for basically about 20 years to officiating and uh, being the first woman to do so in the Ontario Hockey League. Is also, you know, as mentioned, was in the NCAA, uh, got to take part in the NHL All-Star Game festivities with the women's three-on-three event, which was pretty cool. So this is a name and a person to watch as she continues to climb the ladder in terms of uh, OHL and um, hockey officiating. And who knows, one day she might knock on the NHL's door to say, hey, I'm here, let's do this. We see female referees in the NBA. We've seen them for a few years now. Uh, same story in the National Football League. There are female referees. And uh, this is a great, great initiative that the NHL is undertaking. Instead of starting at the grassroots level, which really, you know, many uh, sports people get involved in, whether it's officiating or off 
off the ice or off the court, but the NHL came knocking on the door to say, hey, we see some potential in you and a bunch of others who are at this referee and, and official camp and uh, really teaching her the basics on what to look for because there's so many different things that an official has to keep an eye on, whether you're a linesman or uh, the referee wearing the uh, the gold stripes as well. So Kirsten Walsh, keep that name uh, on uh, on the back burner and see where she goes from here on in. Pretty exciting story. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. After the COVID-19 pandemic wiped out the 2020-21 OHL season, the Hamilton Bulldogs going to return to regular season play this Friday night in Oshawa. It's been a long time coming. Uh, the Dogs will also host Barry in their home opener on Saturday. Here to chat about it is the head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs, Jay McKee. Jay, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing great, thanks. you got to be excited. Uh, yeah, I think we all are. It's been a long time coming, uh, especially the kids. Um, definitely a lot of excitement around the, the rink right now uh, throughout the preseason games that we played and, and uh, really impressed with the way these kids showed up in, in shape and ready to go and, and uh, we're, we're excited about the excitement, so we're ready to get going here. How have you spent the extended off season? Well, watching a lot of a lot of hockey when I can, um, it, it was a challenge for everybody. Uh, I was living in the U.S., so even getting across the border posed some issues. Um, but I just spent a lot of time with family. I have four children, so I used the the time off to really catch up with time with them and and uh, be very involved with my my own family life. And now that we're back at things, uh, we're we're ready to go here. I'm sure the players are absolutely jacked to be finally back on the ice and playing again. Yeah, you can see the excitement in their faces. And I think, you know, even the aspect of just getting together and being around each other again is one of the things I think that the players really missed. Um, junior hockey is a time when you you build lifetime bonds and make lifetime memories with, with friends. And uh, I think just being together, you know, the players missed as well. So um, off the ice, it's been great. And, and on the ice, uh, we're getting better every day and doing a lot of teaching and a lot of refreshers for the older guys and, and trying to get them dialed in here for season opener with a lost season and we know how critical development and showcasing your talents on the ice is to many draft eligible players do you expect some increased pressure not only with players on the bulldogs but throughout the league to you know amp up their play a little more because they've lost a season well yeah and i think you look at some players it was a very unique nhl draft last season in the sense that uh, a lot of OHL players didn't get the looks uh, from the scouts that they normally would. So I think there may be some guys, and we have some included, uh, that you know if they can put together a really good campaign this year, uh, could get drafted even though they're outside of their draft year. Uh, so that's, that's some of the things that we're looking at and focusing on and, and, and wanting to help some of these guys that, that you know we think may have gotten missed. So, yeah, I think you're going to see a really exciting brand of OHL hockey. I think they've been... Uh, in the five preseason games we played, it's been a lot of testy matches where, where you know, there's a lot of motion on the ice, and, and uh, you know, so it's fun hockey to watch. And, and uh, yeah, I think we're going to have a really interesting year in the sense that there's maybe even two draft classes trying to push to get drafted this year. Jay McKee is our guest. He's the head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Due to pandemic protocol, what has the preseason been like in terms of playing in front of smaller crowds? Uh, I think it's been a change, um, you know, but that's, we understand that there's going to be some, 
some changes throughout the year, even even with coaches wearing masks on the bench and and you know everyone having to wear masks in the dressing room and stuff like that. That you know it's uh, there's small inconveniences though. You know we'll we'll do that for the opportunity to be back on the ice and playing hockey. I don't think anyone has complained yet, and and uh, and that's a good thing. I think we're just grateful to be back and and doing what we love to do. So. Any of these uh, small things that you may consider an inconvenience, uh, we have no problem turning a blind eye to. What are some of your goals for season number one? Well, we want to try and get to be a team that scores by committee. I think if we look down the middle with our centers and Jan Ishak and Logan Morrison, Lawson Shirk as their top three centers, and then a, a good, balanced, uh, experienced decor, um, you know, we should be a, a good, strong team to play against in our D zone. And then, you know, we're not a team that has a, a guy like an Arthur Kaliev anymore that you know is going to go out and put up maybe 40 or 50 goals. Um, we're going to be a team that scores by committee, and, and we want to be a team that's hard to play against and, you know, uh, have those nights where the opposition doesn't know where the goal scoring is going to come from. Um, just have guys chipping every night here. So uh, try and be unpredictable in that sense. So, yeah, I think we have a, uh, a lot of real leaders on the team, some real good core guys that uh, will definitely have a great culture in the dressing room. You mentioned Jan Mishak. He's uh, gotten some uh, NHL training camp exposure. What experience is that going to have on a guy like Jan? Well, it's going to be great for him, and, and he played very well. And, and uh, Montreal had sent him back with uh, rave reviews. I'd spoken to one of their uh, assistant coaches, and, and they're really high on him. So that's got to really boost Jan's confidence, and, and he's already a guy that is uh, a real leader in, in the way that he takes care of himself off the ice, the way he trains, and, and the way every practice is 100%. 100%, and, and he's a guy that will come in and be a leader for us. Um, he was also a guy that, that you know, wore the C on the world junior team for the Czech team as, a, uh, as an 18-year-old, which you don't see very often. So he has a lot of real, real quality leadership um, uh, Areas about them, and, and uh, we're certainly going to welcome that. Jane, really appreciate the time. Good luck with this season, and uh, we'll chat with you sometime down the road. Thanks so much. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. Jay McKee is the head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs. They uh, kick off their regular season Friday night in Oshawa, and the Bulldogs' home opener is this coming Saturday. Bulldogs hockey finally back in the hammer. So if you're a hockey fan, you are very, very happy this week. That is for sure. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Chatting about strengthening Canada's food system, and one of the ways that we could potentially do this is to reduce food waste. It's one of my biggest pet peeves, wasting food. Dr. Kerry Holland is the president of Kale Holland Consulting and a researcher at the School of Public Policy and joins us this morning. Dr. Holland, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm doing well. How are you this morning? Not too bad. We certainly waste a lot of food, don't we? We definitely do. In Canada, we're wasting about 58% of our nation's annual food supply. So it's, it's considerable. And the value that we're wasting is about, well, it's close to $50 billion. But if we take into account all the resources that we're wasting and all the inputs that we're essentially wasting by producing that food that's discarded, it actually is equivalent to about $100 billion dollars. Wow, that is unbelievable. So the question is, can reducing our food waste strengthen our food system? Absolutely. I mean, agriculture in Canada has evolved 
with the help of, of technology and innovation. And I think really trying to reduce our, our food waste at its source and then redirecting that food um, and, and utilizing its nutrients when we need to um, would definitely help strengthen our food system. So what are we doing wrong? Are we not uh, keeping food items in our fridge for uh, an appropriate amount of time? Do we, are we just callous and throwing things away before their best due date? What, what are some of the things we're not doing correctly? Well, there's definitely a, a huge amount of waste happening um, throughout the supply chain. So both in scale and value um, at each stage of our supply chain, there is a huge amount of waste. However, if we just kind of focus on the consumer level of waste, I think a lot of it has to do with just the disconnect with our, our food and where it comes from. And um, with that disconnect comes a lot of, um, you know, kind of disregard for the waste. It's kind of easy to dispose of. And I think at the consumer level, another big problem is, uh, is definitely confusion over date codes and the impact that that has on, on you know, what we choose to discard. So in Canada, very few products actually require an expiry date. And um, essentially the CFIA only requires date codes to be put on products that uh, will stay fresh for less than 90 days. But of course, those are set at a manufacturer's discretion. So essentially, you know, that feeds into it. But there's also this culture of kind of disposability and acceptance of waste in Canada, which I think is a huge problem. Very much so. We're chatting with Dr. Carrie Holland, president of KL Holland Consulting and researcher at the School of Public Policy. And we're chatting about a report that she's put together entitled Strengthening Canada's Food System by Reducing Food Waste. Uh, part of this project is uh, looking for improvements and you've made four policy suggestions. Tell us about them. So, yeah, I focus on on kind of four ways that we could help mitigate food waste um, and the first being measurement. I think it's it's very difficult, of course, to measure the amount of food that we waste throughout the supply chain. But researchers are making progress in terms of trying to develop um, certain standards or models of measurement. We need to continue to build on that research. We need to involve government and industry in being more transparent about their waste. And then we need to compile all this data. Um, that's really lacking in Canada. We need to do it more regularly and definitely compile that data so we can get those baseline measurements and we have a way to measure our progress if we do change some of our policies. Um, the second uh, suggestion that I put forth is education. And because so much of why our food is wasted is kind of based on this culture and acceptance of waste, um, we really need to kind of change how, how we value our food and how we value food waste. If we're not looking for you know, efficiencies in our system, um, you know, how do we how do we make those changes in, in our culture? And I mean, it's definitely not easy to do. Um, but if we could, uh, you know, make small changes, even promoting, you know, some food literacy through school programming, being uh, more mindful, of, I guess, about the extent of how much we're wasting. And like I mentioned before, our agriculture and, and food industry, um, has really been built on a foundation of innovation. So that's my third policy suggestion. Um, I, I think investing in innovation and some of these new technologies that are coming out, um, some really interesting Canadian companies making a lot of really innovative products 
not only to upcycle food that's being discarded, but also um, to prevent the waste at its source. And then, of course, um, you know, in uh, in a lot of different areas of policy, um, what's really important is for governments at all levels to really look at their own policies and programming and see if that is fostering waste within our supply chain. So looking at things like grading standards of food and date codes, as I mentioned, and, and even like crop insurance programs are often cited as a reason why food isn't often diverted to food banks um, instead of being discarded. So those are some of the suggestions that I put forth. And um, yeah. Yeah, they're great suggestions. Uh, they would do a lot of... Uh, um, uh good around, not only in, in Canada, but around the world, that is for sure. Um, we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time, but really appreciate the insight into this important topic. Dr. Holland, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a wonderful day. And for the full report, you can just Google Dr. Carrie Holland and uh, food waste, and you'll uh, get all the details on her reports, really extensive stuff, and how they investigated how uh, that can be uh, corrected or at least modified in the uh, years to come. As I mentioned earlier, I, I, I detest throwing out food, knowing that, you know, and it probably goes back to my parents' days. You remember your parents probably saying, uh, you know, hey, there's starving kids all around the world. You know, eat your dinner, finish off your vegetables, you know, get those Brussels sprouts in there. And uh, that was instilled with me over and over and over and over and over again. And so every time we're done dinner in my household and there's some leftovers that is just too little to save for another day or a meal or even a snack, you know, throwing that in the trash is just like, ah, I'm throwing money away here. Throwing money away. And that probably, you know, leads me to keep things in the fridge when there are leftovers longer than normal because I just can't come to grips with throwing that away. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. They talk about being committed to our children and uh, the path forward. Yet they fought us in court for years. Uh, they fought our children in court. So you can't do two things at the same time. I mean, you have your words uh, and actions have to be aligned. That is Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald speaking to Global's Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block about the Prime Minister's trip to Tofino on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And, um, yeah, the PM apologizing to the chief of the B.C. First Nation that invited him to visit Kamloops last Thursday to reflect on the painful legacy of this country's residential school system on the inaugural National Truth and Reconciliation Day. But as we know, Trudeau instead flew to Tofino, B.C. to vacation with his family. Lynn Grew is the CEO of the Native Women's Association of Canada and joins us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, and thank you for calling me in this morning. No problem at all. What was your reaction to the PM's trip to Tofino? Well, we were very shocked. You know, this day, uh, unfortunately, had been taken by the Prime Minister as a holiday. And, and this day is really a day of observance and commemoration for the thousands of, of victims that still are here with us today of residential schools and the intergenerational survivors, which are in the hundreds of thousands. And the whole point of the day was to do just that, a commemoration and an honouring. It's a public day. We expected the Prime Minister to do what he does on 
Veterans Day, be there for the people, be there for the communities, and he was not. Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald called uh, the PM's apology hollow. Do you agree? Well, so there is. it is one small step forward because there was a community where, where he had been invited. I think there was two communities where he had been invited. But, but it requires a very public display of, uh, of, of authenticity uh, in, in, to, in order to, uh, for the communities of the survivors to believe that he's really truthful when he says that he cares about Indigenous people, that we are a priority to fix all of these human rights breaches that are going on and that he does really take reconciliation seriously. So how do we believe him if on the very day uh, where, where you know, it was, he was needed, he was just not there? So it is, it is hollow. And, and, you know, my thinking is, how can we uh, take the PM seriously, and how can he have any integrity when he does speak about reconciliation now? It's very difficult, you know. He's he's you know saying one thing and doing another, uh, so there there is a breach of trust. There is a breach of understanding of what is expected uh, from him as as a leader. So how do you move forward for that for, from that? In, in the very least. He certainly has to take action immediately to start to implement some of those promises that he has made. There are 95, 94 calls to action. This was this is one of them. And the important aspect of it was the public, uh, the public support for Indigenous people. And we saw that from people across the nation. So why why is that not being seen from the Prime Minister? He's got a lot of work to do to rebuild to rebuild trust. I'm not sure how he's going to do it. Lynn, you mentioned there's 94 recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation document. This one was the easiest one, not not creating the holiday, but participating in it. Totally. It, it was absolutely the easiest one uh, for him to be there publicly because it's a public uh, day. Uh, and, and he really missed the mark, you know, and, and so and on the heels of, you know, finding the remains of residential school uh, children that had been in, in unmarked graves on the heels of this decision as well that we have now from uh, the court in regards to uh, payment for compensation for children that have been discriminated uh, in, in this delivery of service in the child welfare system. So, you know, where, where do we even start? Where on earth do we even start with this? Lynn Grew is the CEO of the Native Women's Association of Canada, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I find it amazingly disturbing as well that the Prime Minister has not even visited the B.C. First Nation where these unmarked graves have been found. I mean, I find that unconscionable. Well, absolutely. So, you know, what, what, what on earth, again, could be the reason why? We, we know that we have two significant reports that have come out just during the time where the Liberals were in, were in power. So we have the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission report with, with 94 calls to justice. We have a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's report with 231 calls for justice in there. Um, and, and, and yet, with conclusions of genocide in a country that has a reputation at the international level as a high, high, you know, uh, high human rights reputation. And yet we have uh, this situation of a prime minister who can't even show up when we have such an event that marks our history. A lot of people were still in denial that maybe this really didn't happen the way that the commission report said, but it did. And the evidence literally came out of the ground, literally. Um, so and he wasn't there again. So there's there's something there's something wrong with between what he 
what he says and what he does. So we do know that the Prime Minister has apologized privately. Do you expect Trudeau to make a public apology as well? Because I think he needs to do so. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if he doesn't, then again, he's missing the mark so badly. And he's not, uh, he's not, uh, you know, a politician needs to uh, know the pulse of the people on the ground. Uh, and Indigenous people coast to coast, certainly in the last few days, everyone I've spoke to is, is horrified at what, what's happened here. How can we have that much of a disconnect in, in, in what we're talking about, what reconciliation means? I don't know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how we're, where we're going next. But public apology definitely is required. I mean, it's nice that he called the, that community. We're pleased about that. He needs to do a public apology. He really needs to do that. I think so, too. Lynn, I really appreciate yeah. your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for calling. Lynn Grew is the CEO of the Native Women's Association of Canada, giving us uh, her thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister's private apology to the B.C. First Nation that invited him, uh, not once but twice, to attend a National uh, Day of Truth and Reconciliation activities, commemorations, last Thursday. And um, he, he basically, according to them, ignored their requests and uh, instead, as we know, traveled to Tofino with his family. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. You heard this on last week on Good Morning Hamilton. Once the uh, the, the Doug Ford PC government uh, took over from the former government, they basically changed all the rules. If you look at the changes that they put in place, it basically seems like they've designed the rules of the game to force municipalities to expand their urban boundaries into that brawl type of uh, development that we're, we're trying to stop. That is City Councillor John Paul Danko chatting about the urban sprawl issue that has been a hot topic at Hamilton City Hall for, well, a while now, ever since the survey was issued and the results came back, which uh, show that more than 90.4 percent of the 18,000 respondents voted against expanding the city's urban boundary. Donna Skelly is the Conservative MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. We say good morning, Donna. Good morning, Rick. How are you this morning? Not too bad yourself. I'm well, I'm very well. I'm heading to Queen's Park for our throne speech, so it's going to be a very exciting day today. Can you give us a sneak preview? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can assure you that there will be a, a huge focus on uh, pandemic recovery and and we've been working about um, to try to get the economy uh, reignited for the past few months and we're starting to see the results of that of course uh, but our objective is to is to get people back to work to make businesses profitable to make families healthy and of course the most important thing is to get even more people vaccinated yes let's hope that happens um, regarding the urban sprawl issue the Ontario government uh, taking a little bit of heat after the city of Hamilton received a letter from municipal affairs and housing that said quote it appears the no urban boundary expansion scenario poses a risk that the city would not conform with provincial requirements and many are suggesting that the province is sticking its nose where it shouldn't your thoughts on that well, I think we need to clarify some of the misinformation that has been stated by some of the councillors. This was not an unsolicited letter. The staff at the City of Hamilton reached out to the province, reached out to the Ministry of Housing, asking if the changes that council had requested would conform to our plan for growth as we move towards 2051, I think it's a 30-year plan, 2051. So 
it didn't. And the province responded to that. So that is the first piece of misinformation. We haven't meddled. We've responded to a request by staff. And the request came about after city uh, councillors back in March asked staff to come up with a scenario that meant no expansion, no boundary expansion. The problem with that is we are expecting a massive population growth, not just in Hamilton, but across the GTHA. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of more people in the city of Hamilton. We must accommodate those people. You can't simply say that the existing boundaries will accommodate a mixed style of housing. It will accommodate some people who would like to live in, for example, apartment-style vertical, I call it, living. But there are many, many people, young families, new Canadians, who want to have their feet on the ground. So the plan has to recognize that and has to accommodate that. Some young families, and I know my children are at the stage where they're looking to buy their first home, they're looking at a townhouse. They want a place to park a car or have children play in the backyard we're not talking about million-dollar properties. We're talking about something around the 500000 mark. Many new Canadians are looking to purchase a home. And that's what we're saying. Come back with a plan that actually will accommodate the projected growth. Now, some of the councillors, and I do believe it was Councillor Danko, said he didn't um, believe the numbers. Well, those same numbers were used by those same councillors to justify building the LRT. So if we can expect the population to grow by X amount of hundreds of thousands of people to support the plan for LRT, you can't turn around and say, we don't believe those numbers when it comes to building affordable housing. So we have a minute left here. If this city proceeds with the no urban boundary expansion scenario, will the province accept it? I I don't know how it can. They have to come up with a plan. And, And we're not suggesting, let me be very clear, we're not saying build anywhere. We're saying you come back and figure out how to accommodate these these people. They're not all going to live in apartment buildings. And each one of the councillors that has voted against this lives in a single detached home. It's very hypocritical. If you have a plan and you had a dream to build a home and to raise your family with their feet on the ground, you cannot deny that same dream for young families who are looking for the same thing. Come back. It's your job. Come back with a plan that has mixed use, uh, vertical living, apartment living, semi-detached, townhouses, and single-detached. It'll remain a hot topic, I'm sure, Donna. Really appreciate the time today. Anytime. That is Donna Skelly, Flamborough, Glanbrook Conservative MPP, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. If you were on social media over the weekend, or maybe you went to the McMaster football game on Saturday at Ron Joy Stadium at uh, the Mac campus, you were probably, I don't know, surprised, disgruntled, befuddled, disgusted at what you saw. And what we saw was upwards of 5,000 people, many of them not wearing masks, all of them not physically distancing, holding what is being called a fake homecoming party near McMaster University. Hamilton police have already laid charges in this fast-moving case. After a car was overturned, street signs were damaged during this unsanctioned event in the Westdale neighborhood. Some of the photos on social media, and you can see many of them 
on our website at 900CHML.com, it looked like a concert. Thousands of people huddled together on a street. And uh, as I said, investigators charging two people for liquor license violations, five others for breach of the peace and causing a disturbance. I mentioned a car was overturned. It was not a pretty scene at all. And at the end of the day, it makes McMaster University look very bad. So much so, the president of McMaster, David Farrar, issued a statement yesterday saying, quote, McMaster students and any others who chose to be part of the gathering of several thousand people in our community on Saturday owe our neighbors, our emergency workers, and every other student an apology for the disruptions, disrespect of property, and disregard of those who live in our community. On their behalf, I apologize for this behavior, particularly by those who cause damage and put anyone at risk. Such actions are completely unacceptable. That again from McMaster President David Farrar. And it was nice to see an apology come out quickly. But McMaster did, I think, all it could do in warning students not to gather, encouraging them if they were going to gather to do so safely, hired extra security, alerted the public that, you know, this weekend we want to keep everyone safe, we're not going to go bonkers, and then, well, we saw what happened. So if you were in and around the area, and if you're a resident in that area, a homeowner, and saw some of the chaos, you are certainly being encouraged to call Hamilton Police or Crime Stoppers and report anything or anyone that you feel should be reported. And unfortunately, it does give McMaster a, a, a bit of a stain. A big stain, really. But let's remind you, this was an unsanctioned event. This was not McMaster saying, all right, we're holding a big bash. Very unfortunate, and for the university's sake, extremely unfortunate, that they are now having to deal with this fallout. Uh, we were trying to hook up with um, City Councilor Maureen Wilson. I'm not sure we're able to connect with her, so we'll get her on at a different time. We can tell you that uh, Bill Kelly, the Bill Kelly Show, is going to get Sean Van Kunit, the uh, VP of um, uh, Dean for Students at McMaster, to get some insight on how it actually went down and what happened. We do know that police were called in at around 1230 on Saturday, even before McMaster's football team was kicking off against Waterloo. This wasn't, you know, 5,000 fans at Ron Joy Stadium. They can't even, you know, accommodate that number at Ron Joy Stadium because of pandemic protocols. This was even before the football game kicked off. And for those students who did participate, you know, shame on you. Obviously, they're not listening to this program. And if they were, they would quickly realize that what they did was absolutely over the line. Uh, I can say that Councillor Wilson tweeted over the weekend, quote, this is unacceptable and dangerous. Someone is going to get killed. Past time for McMaster U to own this annual community debacle. Let's send them the bill for all policing, paramedic and cleanup costs. Mac President, get your house in order and stop trashing ours. That is the tweet the other day from Councillor Maureen Wilson. So she's obviously irate. And if I'm a homeowner in that area, or a business owner in that area, you know, the last thing I want to see is 5,000 revelers overturning cars, 
getting drunk, who knows, fighting each other, um, absolutely disturbing. We just can't have this in our community. And, you know, this isn't the first time this sort of thing has happened in Hamilton or in other places. We've seen it in London. We saw it recently in Kingston. You know, these individuals who just don't want to play by the rules and want to just go, I don't know, insane. It's just, it's very disturbing and disappointing. Now, for the most part, our, I think our youth are on the right track, but these individuals certainly uh, are not. Uh, okay, we got a minute with Maureen Wilson. Uh, Maureen, thanks for calling into the show. We had trouble uh, getting your phone number, but glad to have you on. We got to, we have one minute. Are, are you satisfied with McMaster President's apology? I think an apology is a, a good start. But listen, I was there on site, uh, talked to the Hamilton Police uh, Service crime manager who oversees that area. It was, I called it a debacle. It was a debacle. I was back on site yesterday, door knocking um, with permanent residents who live there and some students still witnessing, uh, you know, damaged trees, garbage, glass, um, what they went through all uh, through the night, talked to elderly uh, people who were afraid, uh, were hiding in their rooms, not able to leave their homes. I suspect it might be a good idea for the university to get out and also knock on some doors and to hear directly from the experiences of uh, the people, uh, both the uh, full-time residents and some students who live there. I would imagine that most people who live around the Mac campus are irate. What are your constituents saying? Well, uh, when you hear from constituents that, um, thank goodness, it's rained, because that will help wash some of the uh, urine, uh, feces, vomit, away. Uh, that bar is not really that high. Um, so they're exhausted, um, tired of, of uh, their properties, their neighborhoods, uh, being a substitute for a frat house party. It's certainly disappointing, Maureen. I wish we had more time, but we're plumb out of it. Thanks for uh, calling in and joining us today. Thank you. That's one one Councillor Maureen Wilson joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Zamperin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.